Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We are in uh, one World Trade Center. I've never been in this building, in this iteration. It is, uh, you kind of feel the enormity of it all. But You're very um, safe. Yeah, well, I'm in the New Yorker office. <laughs> uh, I'm here with David Rode, who's the executive editor of NewYorker.com. He's also the author of several books, including one called A Rope and a Prayer, The Story of a Kidnapping. And he has won the Pulitzer Prize a couple times, I believe. Once alone and once a part of an yeah. amazing team of New York yeah, Times yeah, reporters. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. You got a, a couple of them floating around this place. <laughs> Thank you for doing the interview. I reached out after reading a piece you did recently about President Trump's event welcoming home three men from North Korea who had been held hostage. And, and that question of how to manage a hostage situation when you're president of the United States is a very complicated policy debate uh, that I think is worth exploring, but it's particularly worth exploring with you because of your personal experience. You were kidnapped by Taliban forces uh, while reporting in Afghanistan. And the full story, uh, that harrowing story is detailed in your book, A Rope and a Prayer, the Story of a Kidnapping. But the book and articles you've written about it, I think, brings forward a lot of the complexity of the entire region and the policy debate in the area. So I was hoping to, to start there. Sure. So uh, you went to Afghanistan to do reporting for a book about you know, mistakes and missed opportunities in the region, of which you could probably write many books. <laughs> um, and you decided, admirably, in my opinion, that you needed to talk to someone in the Taliban to get their perspective. Just for people listening, like how risky and how common is it for reporters to talk to someone in the Taliban or you know, al-Shabaab or a militant force when there's that risk involved? So this was you know, several years ago. At this point, it was 2008. But at that time, dozens of people had done safe interviews with the mm-hmm. Taliban. And I had been careful and not interviewed them. I'd been covering Afghanistan for about seven years, but I felt like for this book, you know, I sort of felt like a wimp mm-hmm. that all these other journalists had done it, and why hadn't I done it? Badass uh, journalists. Well, yes. Carlotta Gall. Correct. Um, yes. You know, they, and actually Carlotta, those two, those two had not done interviews with the Taliban, but other people had, who I won't name. Right. But I, I was like, you know, I can do this. I'd had an earlier incident when I covered the war in Bosnia where the Serbs had held me captive for 10 days. Yeah. And so I hadn't done anything like that for like a decade. So I agreed to go to this one interview. This person's going to be a character for my book. He had done interviews with a French journalist uh, mm-hmm. twice, had done a TV interview with a, a French journalist, and then a Greek journalist didn't kidnap them. I met the French journalist uh, bef- you know, before I went to my interview, and she said, I've met this commander twice. I think he's using you to get, you know, their viewpoint across. You know, Mm -hmm. you are in more danger as an American, but, you know, you should be fine. And he grabbed us the next day when we showed up for the interview, took us into the mountains of Pakistan and held us there for seven months. So it sounds like you got sort of basically set up by this guy. I mean, you were with an Afghan journalist named Tahir. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Tahir Uh, Ludin. And a driver named Assad. Assad You drove to meet this guy. Instead, you were met by these armed gunmen. They drive you for hours into the desert. They stash you in a mud brick home. Um, in those first hours, are you able to listen to the rational side of your brain that thinks back to that conversation about them? They're getting their message out, or is it just, you know, panic mode? It was um, 
panic mode with a little bit of, of rational um, thinking. One critical moment was, you know, they stop our car, they jump in with guns. Assad, the driver, and Tahir, the, the journalist, get in the back seat with us. And then they take us out on the desert, as you mentioned. And Tahir is turning to me. Uh, the, the Taliban are screaming at us, who are you, who are you? And um, at one point, Tahir says we should attack them, grab them, try to, like, you know, strangle them, them and yeah. fight and somehow regain control of the car. And I remember telling him, like, no, you know, uh, I'd been through this before in Bosnia. And then they, they asked me what my nationality was. And I was debating what to say. And I actually, you know, said I was American. I thought it was better to tell the truth because, you know, you can be Googled. Everyone can figure out who you are. But this was just after, and, and for listeners, this is just after Barack Obama was elected president. Mm-hmm. This is November, late November 2008. And when I told uh, the driver I was American, I remember him grinning broadly and, you know, and shouting to the other Taliban on the car, you know, uh, he's an American. Uh, and then he raised his fist and said, we will send a blood message to Obama. That is just terrifying. It is re- and remarkable. I mean, you talk about this later in the book and in the articles you've written about it. These guys did Google you. They knew what your brother did for a living. They knew about your family. I mean, it's just kind of amazing to think of a Taliban warlord sitting in Waziristan, like Googling <laughs> who's with him. But, but they do. And they all these groups are very sophisticated. And this is long before the Islamic State. But, you know, they did the yeah. same thing with James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, who were murdered. Um, and, and the whole dynamic has just gotten worse. Yeah. So in the vein of turning lemons into lemonade. (laughs) You learned a lot about your captors. You learned about how the Taliban had changed, the the symbiotic relationship between the Pakistani military and the Taliban. Uh, Your treatment seemed to vary guard by guard, but it it did seem like they were all totally indoctrinated with Taliban ideology. What did you take away from how that organization had changed over time and what it told you about the U.S.'s or the Western NATO's ability to uh, influence their thinking or behavior? So uh, it's virtually impossible to get, like, hardcore militants to change their views. Um, They were convinced that 9-11 was staged. Here we are sitting in the new World Trade Center. And that it was simply um, done by the CIA and the Mossad to create a pretext for the U.S. to occupy Muslim countries. They believed that Afghans were being forcibly uh, converted to Christianity by U.S. soldiers. They believed Afghan women were being forced to work as prostitutes on U.S. military bases. Uh, One uh, young guy I met who was training to be a suicide bomber, he was convinced that that a Western necktie was hmm. a secret symbol of Christianity, that it was sort of a cross. Huh. And any Afghan that. government official that was wearing it had secretly converted to Christianity. So they saw themselves as like defending their faith and their families from this, you know, international conspiracy to obliterate Islam from the face of the earth. So, th- so that was pretty Stark. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds pretty stark. <laughs> Meanwhile, they give you your blanket options were Hannah Montana, Spider-Man, and Barbie. Yeah. So this is what's so strange and about, you know, even in this corner of, you know, Waziristan, this remote pocket of, of Pakistan, there's all this Western culture. Um, there were BBC broadcasts in English they let me listen to. There was English language newspapers that they would let me read. They brought me bottled Nestle water huh. that was manufactured in Pakistan, and they were somehow able to get it up into these remote areas. So, And there were younger guards that as the months went by, I mean, the commander said, oh, this guy's a CIA agent and right. made up all these stories right. about me. The younger guards sort of saw through that. And there was one guard who heard his mother was sick and he like begged them to go and see his mother and they said no you have to you know guard David and the two Afghans and then his mother passed away and he left in a fury saying like 
you know, these commanders are frauds. They're criminals. I'm here to fight American soldiers, not to waste my time guarding an unarmed American journalist. You know, mm-hmm. you're not a spy. So there was, you know, there is, for I think among younger people, a chance you can get them to move, but there also is a hardcore group, mm-hmm. to be frank, that you sort of have to use lethal force against. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned this earlier. I mean, you were taken pretty quickly from Afghanistan to the tribal regions between Afghanistan and Pakistan, which are semi-autonomous regions that are a hotbed of extremism. Drones are omnipresent there. And one night, a drone strike occurred just a few hundred yards from the home you were, where you were being held. Can you tell us that story? And did that on-the-ground perspective change the way you thought about you know, the efficacy of drone strikes and, and lethal force? It was, they, I mean, my experience of the drone strikes was that they were largely accurate, but they didn't, they weren't decisive. So mm. a commander would be killed. Um, the Badrin Haqqani, the leader, one of the leaders of the Haqqani network, which is the group that held us there, he, he was killed after I was in captivity in a drone strike, but the, my actual kidnapper is still free and operating. So um, it's a complicated thing, but I do feel like the drone strikes are generally accurate there are civilians killed, but the broader point is they're not a silver bullet. Yeah. You know, if you aren't going to send ground troops into this part of Pakistan to somehow push out these people, you're not going to defeat them. It was eerie. They sound sort of like a Piper Cub, like a small mm-hmm. propeller-driven aircraft circling overhead. When three or four of them would gather, the Taliban guards would sort of freak out because they thought that was a sign there was going to be a strike. And then the one strike you mentioned was extraordinary, just the power of the missile, it hit a car that was driving by the compound we were held in. All of this shrapnel and dirt fell in our compound. It turned out there were four militants in the car. I think they were from Uzbekistan, or they, maybe mm-hmm. they were Arabs. And the, our guards were furious. And uh, I'm alive today because of Tahir Ludin, who you mentioned. Um, he kind of, they were talking about killing us that night in revenge, or sorry, it was that day, um, for this drone strike. And he, Tahir somehow sort of talked them out of it. So it creates this fury also. They see it as cowardly. Mm -hmm. The Taliban will say, like, why don't the Americans come fight us on the ground toe-to-toe? So that's a long way of saying, again, they are effective, but they're very limited. They don't turn the tide of a war. Yeah. It's a complicated discussion, but it's also one in Washington that I think is it rarely has the full context. Because I think there's there's a fundamental question of do you think lethal action should be used against individuals in that area? And if that's the case, your options are ground forces, F-16s, drone. And if you're thinking of it that way, a drone that can linger on a target Mm -hmm. for a long period of time and use a a missile with a payload that is small can be more precise. Now, what people defending drones generally don't talk about is that, sure, there's a high-value target. If you have Osama bin Laden in your sights, you can watch that compound for months and then hit it when he's alone. But then there's something called signature strikes, which is if you see 15, 18 year old guys in a truck heading towards where U.S. troops are and you hit them, you don't know their names. You don't know what they were doing. And that's, you know, could kill a lot of people who are just caught up with the wrong folks. And there are civilian deaths. And so um, I remember Tahir and Assad were taken out by the guards. One strange thing with the paranoia of the drones so the, my guards were convinced that the United States was actually trying to kill me in a drone strike. What? They thought that the drones were hunting for me, which, you know, they may have been to maybe carry out a rescue raid, but they also right. believed that the drones wanted to kill me. But the Taliban themselves would take Tahir and Assad to these graveyards and point to all the graves and say, these are all civilians who have been killed. I, I think civilians are killed. Yeah. I think the numbers are 
you know, more than what the U.S. government says, but less than what the Taliban claims. Right. But again, it's it's like a propaganda tool they use to recruit young men to join these militant groups saying, look, you know, they, they're cowards, and then these drones kill civilians. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Reynolds Wrap. Reynolds Wrap. Potato wedges? Wedges. Olive oil? Salt. Mwah. Well done, hon. Well done, chef. Right. With Reynolds Wrap, cooking becomes so easy, you can feel like the chef of your kitchen. Easy prep, easy cook, easy clean. Reynolds Wrap. For some reason, you're, the people holding you just lie to you the whole time. It's, <laughs> it's insane to me. One lied about his identity. They lied to you that you were going to get released, and they take that back. They forced you to lie about your own treatment and videos. It felt like you were negotiating in some ways your own release when you were with them until you just realized like these guys can't be trusted. So you finally decided to escape. Like what why did you make that final decision? And can you talk about how you guys ultimately got the hell out of there? Yeah, they lied to us over and over again. They had these crazy ideas. I mean, they they wanted twenty five million dollars in cash ransom and I think 10 prisoners released from Guantanamo. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm like some reporter that came to the Taliban for an interview. Like, and we can talk about this later, but, you know, mm-hmm. people will be really angry. Like, you're a fool, David Rode. You went to this interview. Why should the government help you? But they were sort of delusional about what they could get. They lied to me uh, over and over that we were going to be released. And we had kind of thought about escaping, and I'd gotten up in, in, in the night at one point and, and to see if the guards would wake up, and they didn't. And then they moved us to this one house that was very close to a local uh, Pakistani military base. And the simple thing was um, we'd moved to that house. It was a very nice house. It had, like, a computer, and they would sit and play computer, like, uh, role-playing, like, combat games. It was very strange. Yes. Call of Duty type yes, thing. Yes, it was like a Call of Duty version where they would pretend to be American soldiers. But Really? Yes. <laughs> And that's, again, like a how it's all mixed together. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I found a rope um, up on a shelf. There was like a bunch of car parts, and it was a car tow rope. And Tahir and I had a plan to get up when the guards were asleep because Tahir had been going outside and sort of walking around the town with the guards. He would, as an Afghan, he didn't stand out like I would have. So the guards went to sleep. Uh, we got up, went up on the roof, and used this car tow rope to kind of lower ourselves down the roof he had been out in the town enough that he kind of thought he knew how to get to the Pakistani military yeah. base. We sort of found our way there, and we kind of stumbled onto the base. And I remember the hearing these the sound of a Kalashnikov being loaded, mm-hmm. a, um, a round being chambered in the rifle, and people screaming at us. And Tahir screamed like to me, don't move. And I thought it was the Taliban, and he actually said, this is the base. And he had managed to guide us through the night to uh, a little outpost of the base, 
And we stood there for 20 minutes. We had to take our shirts off. They thought we were suicide bombers. I had this long beard. And uh, luckily, a, um, a Pakistani army captain, a moderate, believed this crazy story from this uh, guard post that there were these two people standing there claiming they were an American journalist and an Afghan journalist. He led us on the base and saved our lives. Thank God. I mean, what's amazing to me about the, the broader story is that wasn't the first time you guys had seen the Pakistani military, right? I mean, there were times when a convoy would drive by you and you guys would be forced to stay in the car and the leader of from the Haqqani group, which is almost more of a, they're an extremist group like the Taliban, right? But they're more mob-like. Is that more mob-like, yeah. It's like a combination of, they, they have a veneer of they're doing this for, you know, religious reasons or, you know, Afghan nationalism, but they're actually a organized crime syndicate. So they, um, they still operate in this part of Pakistan and you're bringing up this broader lesson you know, we've we have failed the United States and Afghanistan for many reasons, and you know we tried to maybe change the country too much. And mm-hmm. well, we were first distracted by Iraq. You know, second, it was probably too much to think we're going to create a democracy there. But you know, a third and vital reason is that Pakistan has given the Taliban a safe haven yeah. all of these years, and so no one can win in Afghanistan if their enemy has a safe haven in Pakistan. We used that to defeat the Soviets in the 80s. Mm -hmm. The situation was reversed. We were, you know, the people in the tribal areas of Pakistan arming these young fighters. It was this, and Soviet soldiers were fighting and dying in Afghanistan. So it's a really complex place. I care a lot about Afghanistan. I have many Afghan friends. But until we can get Pakistan to cooperate and Pakistan to crack down on the Taliban, you know, we'll never succeed yeah. there. Uh, Ronan Farrow, a, a cub reporter, I believe works here now. Um, <laughs> he is extraordinary, uh, and I'm lucky and proud to be his editor. Wrote about this, the challenge of the safe haven <laughs> in, uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan in his book. Uh, it was really well done, but I think you could also say that Syria's got the same problem. So does so Iraq, so all these places. Anyway, so that brings us back to Joint Base Andrews at 3 a.m. on May 10th and your article that I started with. So we have Trump, we have Pence, we have their wives. They went to the airport in the middle of the night to welcome home three Americans who had been in North Korea. Is it fair to say that this type of event was unusual? So what was unusual was a president going at 3 a.m. and the whole thing is broadcast live on uh, cable TV. And I was very torn in like writing this story. I am incredibly grateful to Donald Trump for the fact that these three prisoners are home. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them had been held longer than any other American, sentenced to like 10 years hard labor, and had somehow survived for two years. So the fact that these three are home is extraordinary. Yeah, it really And I, I praise the Trump administration for bringing them home. But it was odd, and I talked to other former captives about the publicity around it. And I, you know, it's important to praise the president when he does something right. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm totally with you. Like, I... I have the same struggle. I mean, the, the broader context is that every president deals with hostage situations. In 1979, 52 Americans are taken hostage in Iran. In 2009, Obama dispatched Bill Clinton to North Korea to bring home uh, two journalists, Laura Ling and Yuna Lee, who had been held in captivity. In 2012, a journalist named Austin Tice was taken captive in Syria. He still has not still been released. Missing. People yeah. still pray for him and think about him all the time. Part of the reason that these governments or groups like the Taliban take hostages uh, is to gain leverage, right, and to extract something in exchange for their release, which they never should have been taken in the first place. Mm -hmm. Again, it's obvious to me, too, that Trump cares about getting these people home. He wouldn't do it if he didn't. But the cynic in me wonders if that's largely because it creates a good news story event. The risk is, you know, that he could be incentivizing this kind of activity by making it a focus and making it 
high profile? Like, how do you manage that if you're the Trump White House or NSC? It's look, it's an excruciatingly difficult problem from Jimmy Carter to Barack Obama to Donald Trump. Like, and, and then I will say this clearly as a, as a former hostage, the foreign policy of the United States cannot be driven by the needs of a person who's been taken prisoner. Like I sat there in captivity and it's easy for me to say because I've survived, but I was like, let the drone strikes continue. Like it might get me killed, but there's sort of broader goals that a country has to achieve. And so can you somehow bring a captive home, you know, without contradicting your broader foreign policy goals? And the danger then about the publicity that surrounds this is that so many people, there's been a pattern, the the North Korean government, the Iranian government, Mm -hmm. arresting American citizens and using them as bargaining chips. You know, uh, I was a bargaining chip the Taliban had. You know, I talked about Jim Foley and Stephen Sotloff earlier, where it's gotten so bad that the Islamic State will just kidnap an American so they can, you know, film their beheading and use it for propaganda purposes. So the danger of what Trump did is he sort of is signaling to governments and groups, this president really likes to bring hostages home and you can incentivize it. And it's, it's hard. I mean, he, I'm good friends with Diane Foley and John Foley, Jim's parents, and they're still, you know, haunted by the death of their son. I blame the Islamic State. I think, you know, they did everything they could. Mm-hmm. But it's, um, do you want to give foreign countries and militants that kind of leverage? Yeah. I mean, we should be clear. These people are taken indiscriminately. It doesn't matter if you're a U.S. service member or a journalist, someone there trying to end the war. People have been taken and used as propaganda tools over and over again. I think the question is, how should a government respond? I mean, when when you got back... Did you go to the White House? Did you go to the Oval Office? Like, how would how did that feel for you? So I did not meet uh, Barack Obama. Um, I didn't. That's fine. <laughs> um, and I I felt terrible. I mean, I it was a dumb thing to go interview that Taliban commander. Um, I felt very guilty about what I put my family through. The New York Times and my editors and friends there were incredible. Through those seven months, they did a huge amount to help me. So I, I didn't, you know, feel like I deserved to meet the president. And and the broad thing. Two is that the United States has a very clear policy, Republicans and Democrats alike, that the United States will not pay ransom to a, a terrorist organization, and it will not make like major concessions to a, a foreign government. European governments are believed to pay very large ransoms, right. and that's why European journalists who were held with you know Jim and Steve survived. They were ransomed. So the, the Syria cases were a very painful yeah. example of standing by that policy. So I don't know how you bring them home. I mean, right. this was a moment with North Korea where the summit was approaching. It was clearly in Kim Jong-un's interest to release these three Americans. It was an easy precondition for the summit for Trump and Pompeo to ask for that to happen. So that's a big success. When Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Iran deal, that essentially doomed. Uh, there are seven American citizens and green card holders currently being held in Iran. Yeah. They'll be held now for months, if not years. Yeah, and you also wrote about how um, uh, when President Sisi from Egypt came to Washington, he released someone, I believe, before? Uh, Hijazi. Yeah, it was, again, it's a deal. Trump brings Sisi, who has a terrible humanitarian record, to the Oval Office. President Obama did not bring Sisi um, to the White House for that reason. And after the meeting, after Sisi gets this nice audience with Trump in the Oval Office, Sisi then releases this amazing uh, American aid worker who'd been helping street children in Cairo. She and her husband were accused of child trafficking, of of exploiting these kids and sexually abusing them. It was a totally trumped-up case. They spent three years in Egyptian jail, never went on trial. She never should have been detained, nor should her husband. But 
it's a fig leaf. Right. CC releases her to Trump after he gets his Oval Office visit. The way the administration, the White House, approached managing these cases was far from perfect. You know, people felt like they were sort of threatened out of negotiating with militant groups or paying ransoms to the point where Obama instituted a whole bunch of policy changes that, that Trump, you write, has, has, to his credit, kept. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's you know, something they really thought about and focused on, or is it just sort of defaulting to the status quo is easier? Well, there's an interesting, you know, problem that the Obama administration faced. So the, you know, Bo Bergdahl, yes. you know, we escape, and several weeks later, the Taliban uh, capture Bo Bergdahl. And then he is held by the same faction that had me, some of the same kidnappers, for five years. And this just briefly, that is Pakistan's fault. Yeah. There is no way that an American soldier should have been able to be held on Pakistan's territory for five years. They should have been able to find him. Imagine if an American soldier was held by Iran for five years, but that's back to the blind eye towards Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Obama famously you know, did not release prisoners from Guantanamo but transferred um, several Taliban commanders to Qatar where they are still held in detention. They, are, they right. have not rejoined the fight in Afghanistan. So when a Democratic president does a deal like that, He is weak. He's negotiating with terrorists. He's giving concessions. You know, when Trump is making deals, it's it's sort of praise. So it's it's a catch twenty two that was very difficult, I think, for Obama to deal with. A positive thing they 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 set up this new uh, hostage recovery fusion cell. It's a joint effort by the FBI and intelligence agencies and the State Department to try to bring Americans home. Trump, you know, has maintained that office. It does help families, but the issue of like how do you get Austin Tice out of Syria? is just as complicated. There is no sort of easy way to get a regime to release an innocent American. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. I mean, I want to talk about Bo Bergdahl a little. So he came home in 2014. As you said earlier, the U.S. sent five Taliban detainees to Qatar, where they are held under house arrest. These are 
guys who had been in Gitmo for years and years and years, in some cases were decrepit old men. Mm-hmm. Obama also held sort of a controversial press event at the time, yep. uh, which some might say, you know, added to the problems. But I have to say, like, I've, I've never been more wrong about <laughs> how something would be perceived by the press and the public. Because I worked on that issue for a long time, because what would happen is it was part of a broader set of reconciliation talks with the U.S., the Taliban, the Afghans. So, of course, it leaked. It leaked immediately. And and getting Bo back was seen as sort of a confidence-building measure to begin a larger set of peace talks, which we need to have happen still to this day. Yep. But I always assumed, regardless of why Bo was taken captured, whether, whether he deserted his post or whether he was fell back in a, in a march and was just taken, I thought that the American people and that politicians would just say, thank God he's home. And I, I want to caveat that by saying that like, if you were a service member who worked with Bo or had to search for him or felt like you lost someone who was patrolling for him, they should say whatever the hell they want. They, they can hate his fucking guts. I don't care. That's their right. But Donald Trump would go to campaign rallies and joke about how Bo Bergdahl should be executed. I mean, an American soldier. So it's, I mean, there's a warning here for, you know, President Trump that you can use, a, you know, if you try to use bringing a hostage home for sort of political gain, um, it can backfire on you. I don't think that's what President Obama meant to do or mm-hmm. you were involved with this decision of, and it was basically Bo Bergdahl's parents came to the, yeah. you know, and stood in the Rose Garden with him and, and said a few words and it was turned into a massive political weapon and it was used very effectively by Trump and Republicans, you know, that Bo was a traitor, Bo should be executed, the Obama administration's weak on terrorism. You know, people still think that these five Taliban commanders are now roaming around Afghanistan. They're not. You know, they're in ha- they're under house arrest. I was surprised as well. I understand the anger of soldiers. You know, he did leave his base voluntarily. He yeah. made a mistake. Uh, he then suffered through five years of horrific hell. captivity. But it's how complicated these cases are, and I, I couldn't I didn't write about Bo in the story because he's a soldier and it's different, but it's so, you know, again, just as president, you know, there seems to be a pattern of him showing off these captives when he brings them home. And it's that can backfire on yeah. you. And that's sort of what happened in the Bergdahl case. But we've changed as a country. I never thought, like you, that a soldier would be so vilified as he was. And, and uh, you know, he's afraid of living in the United States. I have never talked to Bo. I talked to his parents for many years when he was in captivity. I tried to give them advice about how to get him out. But I know from them, you know, they still get thre- death threats. And, you know, Bo Bergdahl doesn't feel he can live safely in this country. And, and it's what's sad is that's how, you know, vicious and polarized our politics have become. Yeah. Blaming the victim in these cases is remarkable. I mean, I, I hear it in your he, own he, voice. Well, he made a mistake. <laughs> I made a mistake. I'm a dumbass but, who but went like, off to an interview. It's not your fault. He, he <laughs> left his base. He thought he was going to go. He had concerns about what was happening in his unit. Right. And he was going to march through the night. He thought he was grew up in Idaho. He can get through the mountains and go to a bigger military base and warn more senior commanders about what was going wrong with his unit. And it was a silly decision. He was captured very quickly. And, you know, I made a mistake. He made a mistake. Was five years in captivity enough, you know, for him to pay? Uh, You know, he still got a a court-martial proceeding going on against him. But he did become a political football. It's just remarkable. I mean, clearly he made a choice to walk off, and that ended horribly for him. But you don't hear the same voices criticizing Bibi Netanyahu for trading, what, I think a thousand? A thousand prisoners, yeah. A thousand prisoners for Jalad Shalit, who was an Israeli soldier who was taken captive. And he was taken captive, you know, in sort of routine duty. So I guess they don't 
victim shame him the way they do with Bo Bergdahl. <laughs> but the foreign policy implications of a thousand guys for a soldier and talk about incentivizing their capture, you know, talk about letting, you know, terrorists into the wild versus five guys who are sitting in a house in Qatar that's probably wired to the gills by every intelligence agent on the planet. So maybe it's a story about the fragility and stupidity of our politics. Part of Trump's success is standing by what he does and exaggerating, you know, what he's achieving or what he's done or how he's, you know, getting the rest of the world to to respect us. You know, this just blew up on the Obama administration. I don't I don't know. I don't think there's a better line somehow that the administration could have taken, but I don't I mean I'm like all of us, it's a it's a very strange era and a very polarized era. Yeah. And I have relatives that sort of enraged by the whole Bo Bergdahl story and there's basic facts. Again, they think the five Taliban commanders are back in Afghanistan and they're not. So again, I just, uh, you can be a hero for helping a hostage or uh, as a president, or you can Mm -hmm. be a villain and be, you know, weak. You look at Jimmy Carter, if you focus too much on hostages. So it's a very delicate dance that President Trump is involved in now. Or you could be a hackish Republican who uh, (laughs) criticizes all of the above. I mean, one of the, there's there's this sort of very specific implications in terms of the policy for how you deal with kidnapping for ransom. But it also worries me that the the specter of Bo Bergdahl and trading the five Taliban guys seems to have maybe soured Trump on any chance of negotiating a peaceful solution in Afghanistan. Yes. Yeah, and so that's the thing. I mean, it's like my diplomacy is Trump's diplomacy with North Korea is better than anyone else's diplomacy. I mean, it's, and this is where we're so divided politically that it's kind of when when Obama negotiates with the Taliban it's weakness if a republican administration does then it's it's somehow you know negotiating from strength so it, it has i mean that everyone saw the way that deal was used as a political sledgehammer yeah. so it does um discourage that a broader and more simple question is you know should the united states pay ransoms yeah for people taken by militants or or criminals and and european nations are definitely paying them. And, you know, Peter Kasich and, and uh, Caleb Mueller were, were yeah. two other Americans held by the Islamic State. They were, you know, murdered as well. Those four families are just heartbroken. Yeah. They tried to raise money, couldn't raise enough money. People think the American government secretly pays ransoms. They don't. In right. every single case, you know, I've been known about. And it's a very um, difficult situation. So Diane Foley is sort of doing research trying to look at, does this U.S. policy of not paying ransoms actually save American lives? Does it lead, you know, you're assuming that the Taliban or Islamic State are rational, and they're like, well, I won't take that American because the American government won't pay me a ransom. Yes. They actually think the American government uh, does pay ransom. I was in captivity when there was the Navy SEAL raid off of Somalia, Mm -hmm. and the uh, ship captain was rescued. It became the movie. Captain Phillips. Captain Phillips. And my kidnapper was like, there was no Navy SEAL raid. The Americans paid $25 million for that captain. And I'm like, you're wrong. (laughs) But they live in this sort of alternate reality. So, again, I'm not sort of saying we must pay ransoms and all this stuff. It's just that I've seen, again, how how complicated these cases are and how they can blow up in the face of a politician. Mm -hmm. And, And it's just, I guess, and what makes me the angriest is these incredibly cynical governments and incredibly, you know, cynical criminals and militants who who take innocent yeah. people. There are two Americans. Paul Overby is a, a journalist who the Haqqanis have, and Kevin King 
is a, he was a professor um, at uh, American University in Kabul. He was kidnapped from the streets of Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, taken. I mean, I, I left Kabul mm-hmm. and went outside the city to meet my Taliban commander. He did nothing wrong. He was on the streets of the country's capital. He was taken by the Haqqanis. Both of them have been held now for at least two years. They're in terrible health. They're in captivity. And I um, just feel for them and their families. Yeah. I think there's a danger in, in turning these hostages when they return home into wins was, right. a, was a term that was used that the Trump administration sees bringing a captive home as a win because that's where you're using short-term domestic political gain mm-hmm. in a dangerous way. You don't want to you know, use that sort of quick boost to the American public that creates a larger international dynamic that will come back and haunt you. So some might say, oh, it's unseemly that the president went out and, you know, live cable TV coverage. I don't care that it's unseemly. I am concerned that it does raise the value of an American captive and that, you know, whether it's North Korea or Iran or Syria, around the world governments are like, hmm, I'm going to grab an American aid worker, an American professor, and and jail them. Or there are militants who will just grab and kill Americans um, just because they think it's a way to get – at, uh, at President Trump. You raised a broader sort of policy trap I think we fall in constantly when dealing with Afghanistan or Pakistan or these militant groups, which is we think we can apply logic to these policies we're putting in place, which is to say, oh, well, if, if they know we won't pay a ransom, then we, it will not be a, as big of a problem. But like, how do you get yourself in the mind of a Haqqani network commander who <laughs> went to a madrasa until he was 11 and only learned propaganda-based training, right? I mean, it's like, you, it feels fundamentally flawed. You can't, and then, I mean, look, the only answer to kind of ending kidnappings in, in terms of, like, militant groups is this broader problem of, like, these giant lawless safe havens that now exist all around the world. I mean, kidnappings in Somalia have slowed down. The African Union mission there, backed by the Obama administration, has, you know, limited the the strength of al-Shabaab, and there's less kidnappings in Somalia. Mm-hmm. The peace deal in Colombia with FARC right. ended a horrific, horrific pattern of dozens and dozens of kidnappings in Colombia. So this gets back to good old-fashioned diplomacy, yep. good old-fashioned development, law and order, like, you know, local people in these countries, Pakistanis, Colombians, Somalis, having a normal life where they're in a, a local functioning government, not us, not a long-term, you know, U.S., troop occupation, but slowly working at these problems, you know, solves many things and they can help reduce the number of of kidnappings. And people mock it and we're just going to bomb them and we're going to scare the Haqqani militant into giving up. They want to die. They want to be martyrs. What scares them is slowly working with moderate Pakistanis and Afghans to regain control of these areas, helping them run their own country better. You know, everyone laughs at it. Everybody sneers. But that's the answers. There are moderates in these countries. I'm alive today because an Afghan moderate helped me escape from the Taliban. Mm -hmm. So it's the long slog. It's the long investment in these countries, believing in local people, believing that there are moderate Muslims that Mm -hmm. succeeds, not the kind of quick hit win of I brought one, you know, captive home. Right. I killed an Al Qaeda number three. Correct. Because it's as I talked about with the drones. It's whack-a-mole. Yep. It's just a, you're not winning, you're not losing. It's just this grind yeah. um, status yeah. quo. I will very much admit that we at times fell into the trap of sort of celebrating the, the kinetic wins on the battlefield without any broader long-term success. So my, my final question for you is, you know, you talk about these horrible 
groups like the Haqqanis and the Taliban that still exist. You, tore up, you talk about the structural problems of the Pakistani military and government and the ISI, their intelligence service, being complicit uh, in what they are doing and, and having ties to these groups. When you look at Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, a region you've been covering since 2001, yep. do you think there's any sense that things on the ground now are better than they were previously that might lead us to getting the hell out of there or at least leaving the country better than when we found it? No, it's worse. And the, the death toll is, uh, I think last year, something like 15, maybe 20 American soldiers died in Afghanistan. Uh, it's because we have a very small troop presence now. And during the same period, I believe 8,000 um, Afghan soldiers and police died fighting Jesus. the Taliban. And there was at least uh, several thousand civilians, Afghan civilians dying. So the approach now, which is a very small American force, maybe 10,000, mm-hmm. it's not enough to win the war, but there's enough Americans to kind of not lose the war. Right. And so there is this pointless policy now of just hanging on in Afghanistan. We should either pull out or you know, send in more troops or negotiate. And we're not doing either. It's just the the status quo. But and I will, you know, the one soapbox I'll get on is I, I just think, you know, look, the Arab Spring, it's incredibly complicated. The Middle East, the majority of young people in these countries want to live, you know, be very proud of being Muslims, but they want to be modern as well. And there there is a way to engage with this region slowly and patiently to help them deal with the civil war that is going on in the Islamic world between, you know, horrific extremism in the Islamic State and the many, many people that oppose that. The Trump administration has decided to back generals and, you know, Saudi autocrats and sell right. them a lot of weapons, and that's going to do it. I don't think it's going to work. The The Obama administration, I think, tried to sort of engage less in the region militarily. I've said for years there's some middle ground. I don't know where it is, but I, I think that I just it's frustrating to me when it's portrayed as they all hate us. Yeah. They don't. Or it's portrayed as we're just gonna leave and the problem's gonna go away. Right. So we, we need to stay at this and kind of listen to local people more and be more patient and, and make them help them d- deal with these challenges. And I, I again I'm biased, you know, my Afghan moderate friends saved my mm-hmm. life, but they're out there. Yeah. Yeah. David, thank you for talking to me. If folks want to hear the rest of this story, they should buy A Rope and a Prayer, the story of a kidnapping, or just go to thenewyorker.com. Maybe subscribe, pay for journalism. <laughs> That's a good way to do it, too. Pay for journalism. I'm, I'm a full supporter of that. <laughs> we need um, your help. We're all, we make many mistakes, but we're trying the best we can. You're doing a great job. Thank you again. Thank you. can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. 